This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Penelope Schliemann has written a best-selling mermaid novel, and to her surprise, she is leaving her job as a high school English teacher to head to Los Angeles to consult on the movie adaptation of her work. Thus begins the hilarious and utterly unexpected debut novel, American Mermaid, by the comedian and writer Julia Langbein. American Mermaid is the story of a woman at sea in her life and relationships and wishing to find adventure and freedom in her creative and personal existences. She will soon learn the difficult lesson that writing a feminist wish fulfillment of a novel does not free you from the shackles of gender that prescribe what it is you may do with your body and your imagination. Hollywood offers that lesson most clearly and painfully and often side-splittingly as Penny attempts to exert some control over her creation, discovering that the commercialization of her novel into a blockbuster comes with the sexualization and disempowering of her once powerful mermaid creation. This is also the story of Penny's mermaid, Sylvia who has her own societal battles, including the physical manifestation of her constraint, the splitting of her tail into two ungainly, unworkable ersatz legs. As Penny begins to wage her own battles against the destruction of her creative passions by an unyielding commercial monolith, we read actual chapters from the novel within the novel, American Mermaid, and follow Sylvia's battle to live in a new environment free from the imprisonment of a constructed body. Together, the two strands of narrative develop into an adventure story in which the lives of a very ordinary woman 
and a very extraordinary hybrid woman collide in ways unexpected and marvelous. American Mermaid delivers a funny, pointed, tender, and often original debut novel. Julia Langbein has written about food, art, and travel for Gourmet, Eater, Salon, Freeze, and other publications. A sketch and stand-up comedian for many years, she was raised in Chicago and now lives outside of Paris with her family. Welcome to the show, Julia. Hi, thank you for having me. As usual, those are very, really good, insightful summary. Thank you. Oh, well, I am so pleased <laughs> to get to talk to you because this book just literally had me laughing out loud and and very annoyingly to my family, I think. Um, and I, I just found it engrossing and insightful and hilariously funny. But I that's wanted... what I want to hear. I want to hear that people were slapping their partners in bed. I want that's 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 when I've feel successful. <laughs> well, I can I can attest that that is the truth, at least in my case, and I'm guessing in a lot of people's experiences. But I want to start with how interesting it was to experience the book as this sort of split narrative voice with these very different kind of discourse and tones of Penelope's story, but then also interspersed with the chapters from the novel within a novel that has made um, Penny momentarily famous. How did you decide to take on these two formal registers in one book? Well, um, it, it may seem like a kind of avant-garde or like highfalutin move to have a story within a story, but actually it totally came out of improv comedy. Oh, fascinating. Um, yeah. So I used to do improv like hours upon hours of it in college. And after college, I was in a sketch group and we used improv to come up with material. And then I, I stopped doing comedy and I got a PhD and I moved to London and I was, um, I was doing a postdoc at Oxford and I had all this pressure to like write my academic monograph. And I was literally like wearing a black gown and going to these dinners and feeling, <laughs> like feeling real. Imp the other day, my husband was like, have you heard of this thing called imposter syndrome? And I was like, I, <laughs> I, I lived imposter syndrome so hard the entire time we were living in the UK. But anyway, and, and I just like, even though I didn't have time for it, I signed up for improv again. I just started, I started doing, going up through um, a kind of, kind of like UCB or uh, what are the other ones, uh, the groundlings or whatever that they have in the US. It was a similar kind of thing in, in London. And I started doing that and ended up on a team and things like that. Um, so I was doing all this improv and it was really, really, really fun. And I remember laughing so hard, like, you know, just this feeling that I missed so much and just standing in front of people, just making things up in this like really radical form of just complete playfulness. Mm. Um, and I'd missed it so, so, so much. And then I got pregnant and I finally, I, my, I think I did my last improv show, like literally weeks before giving birth. And then I had a baby and I couldn't be hanging out in bars, drinking and making stuff up. And I, this story really came out of like, just wanting to play, um, wanting, I had the seed of this character and I'd had this story. And I remember like a year before sitting around with some people and being like, Don't you think that somebody should write something else about my rights? <laughs> you know, people being like, Julia, shut up and do it. But, um, but, but the actual, like the actual sitting down and writing the story and it taking the form that it did completely came from the improv form that we would do called the Herald, which essentially without boring you, um, involves like taking, involves building meaning out of repetition. So you have scene A, B, C, scene A1, B, A1, B1, C1. So you come back, you come back to, and just by virtue of coming back to very simple scenes over and over again, 
the the kind of juxtapositions and connections create their own comedy. Mm. So it, it's like a very, I trusted this form and I, I missed it. It was very intuitive to me at that point. So yeah, it wasn't a literary thing. It, it was purely a structure I knew that I could use to play with and have dialogues by myself alone at my computer. Hmm. Now that you explain it that way, it makes so much sense as the scenes, you know, are often mirroring each other with a difference. But the the tonal change is 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 so dramatic. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you found that hard or if that's just something that because of the improv need to have kind of different voices very quickly that that came easy. I think it I think it did come. I think it was exactly what I knew would make the kind of meaning that I wanted. I, it was, um, was to have those juxtapositions. And indeed, like there's the whole, those Sylvia scenes, which for those of you who haven't read it, um, the scene, this, the scenes that are excerpted from the novel. So they are not themselves comic scenes, right? They're scenes of a road trip or of a woman, you know, discovering her past. They're, they're, let's say they're the Marvel movie, right? Mm -hmm. At the heart of it. I knew writing those, that those, them, those scenes themselves aren't going to be laugh out loud funny. There's not, right? But they have a seriousness in them, which can be fodder, which can be a foil for, mm -hmm. for the funny to follow. And so I always, you know, if, if you, when you're writing, you have an infinity of choices at any minute, you need to have an orienting point. You need to have some kind of a North, a North star. And mine is always what's, how can I have a comic structure here? What's, where's the funny going to come from? And um, so even when I'm being serious, it's because I know it's going to launch something funny later or make something funny possible later. And like that, again, is also improv. Like you're, you're thinking, you, you, like one of the fundamental rules of improv is you don't start a zine. Hey, you guys, there's a fire at the dildo factory. Like you have to sometimes have something. You have to go to like serious real places in order to have funny things. You can't, you have to allow ripples to kind of happen in a still pool. Mm. And so... If even if your goal is to do something hilarious, at some point someone has to just stand there chopping carrots, and you'll get there. I this is my problem. I always start with the dildo factory, and <laughs> exactly. I, I, I need to go second with that. But I'm I'm I I do find it. Uh, really interesting that you're able to have irony leak from the penny scenes kind of into the earnestness of the Sylvia scenes. And so that they do become funny, even when they're not meant to be and, and not read straight as funny. So I love the kind of leakage between the two discourses. Yeah, I, you know, I I took um, when I was an undergraduate, I did I never I was never an English major, I never studied um, literature, but I did do a minor in creative writing. And but I I was a playwright. I did playwriting. I've I've always veered away from fiction. I thought fiction was nauseating, especially like undergraduate. It's like everyone just writing veiled stories about their like dorm orgasms. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all bad and the same. <laughs> yeah, and also I just didn't want to do it. Like I just felt like really put upon to be made to make stuff up. But I would write in my playwriting for my, you know, playwriting, you write stuff and bring it in every workshops. It, and I would write stuff that I thought was serious and people were rolling in the aisles. So I don't know, like, I was just like, I'll just lean into this, I guess. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe the fact that the humor is there in this, in the quote, like serious parts, um, that's just, that's, I find that comforting, but I don't, it's just going to always be there, you know. 
Mm, definitely. So Penelope, or Penny as she's called, makes the infamous error to which all writers are prone, trusting screenwriters with their creative work. Murphy and Randy, a tag team of screenwriters, soon begin dulling the most important and lasting qualities of Penny's novel. Do you have a sense of why the relationship between these two kinds of creative writing is so often antagonistic? And was it fun to play with how Penny and her screenwriters can never find a common ground or speak to each other in the same language? Well, interestingly, you know, Murphy and Randy, the two like bros who are assigned um, to help adapt her book into uh, this action flick, they, I don't think they are full on villains, right? Like they, she, she comes out and says a lot of points, but like, wow, they're really good at kind of writing, um, uh, you know, e- economic action scenes and mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. have a skill set. And but they're I, a little villainous. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But I, you know, a lot of my friends from doing comedy when I was younger went off and are TV and film writers. And I think they, str- they struggle with it too, right? Just the, um, the sheer economy of things and the way that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the way that you have to fight really hard to keep complexity and depth at play. And I think they're, they're very, they're, they're all doing a great job um, uh, at it, but, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, ironically, uh, you know, it, there has been talk about adaptation of this book, <laughs> right? Like just as Penny wrote herself, a new, Penny, the writer wrote herself a new future. I like wrote myself a new future. And I'm, my feeling about it is change it, take it, run with it. I don't even want to know. I want to buy a ticket to the Mm -hmm. debut and see what someone else did. I love the idea of that. Somebody might've seen something in a minor character that I had no idea was there, you know, or even, um, even make it, make it stupid. I don't care. I can't wait. (laughs) I love it. Put everyone, make everyone like, yeah, I don't know. Make everyone a puppet. I, that, I don't know. Actually, puppets would be cool. I, like, I just think the whole idea of someone changing what you've done is really exciting. But, I, but I'm a lover of the stupid and the simple, so maybe I'd be cool to go in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> um, in one of the many text and email back and forths with the screenwriters, Murphy and, and Randy suggest that Sylvia, Penny's mermaid, uh, needs to be driven by a sexual desire, despite mm. Penny's insistent that insistence that she has no external genitalia, re she's a fish, and that her drive is ecological and gender based rather than out of a you know needed sexual desire for men this particular exchange is hysterically funny while being a a quite painful reminder of what gender construction looks like in hollywood would you be willing to read a bit of this section for us sure absolutely thanks um so this is you've just come off of in this scene a very poignant scene where uh sylvia the mermaid has had uh, you know this painful episode and has woken up on an operating table right she's she's grappling with the the violence that's been done to her body which I won't won't get into too much now but so then you come out of that scene and then the next chapter is a text thread between me and Murphy and Randy Murphy Randy and I really love this aspect of Sylvia that she doesn't feel sexual attraction for anyone 
Murphy. She's like anatomically female, but her gender identity is fish or whatever, <laughs> Randy. But we also need to find a way around this. For example, Murph and I were toying with the idea of Masahiro, that's a uh, parenthesis, that's her doctor, administering her some kind of a sexual hormone in a compassionate way to help her be like other teenagers. We know he has, we know he's tried to be super ethical because his family was like A-bombed, et cetera, et cetera. So this is something he was really resisting. Murphy, exactly. Like we love, love, love the atomic bomb backstory. That's day. And it's a really important part of his character that he's gentle. He doesn't want to do harm. But Randy and I have been banging our heads against the wall about this and we don't see any way out of it. We need her at some point to have sexual feelings. Penelope. But do you guys not see it as a violation that Masahiro sliced her tail in half and made her pass as a human without her knowing? That was harm. Randy, well, we didn't see it like that, and we're pretty sure audiences won't. Murphy, it's complicated, right? The point is, we need some drive. Penelope, the whole point, the whole pathos of her among humans is that she's totally of human sexuality. Randy, sure, but pathos is for books. Movies are made of minutes. Murphy, <laughs> minutes need to move. Mermaids don't have vages. We get that and we love that. <laughs> but we need something here. If Masahiro doesn't give her some kind of you know, sex hormone, she needs to just feel something, like a little something on her own. Otherwise, Randy, you have to think cinematically. Murphy, yeah. Otherwise, imagine camera comes in close on the face of Amanda Seyfried and she's staring into the middle distance. Without a motive, what does the audience think is going on inside her mind? Murphy, literally nothing. <laughs> The audience needs to know her desires, Randy, and those desires need to be important. Trust us as people who've done a lot of screenwriting. Characters need drive. Penelope, yeah, but her drive is to save the world's oceans from becoming a toilet. Murphy, we don't see a conflict between doing that and being sexy. Randy, yeah, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Well, I can't think of any sexy environmentalists right this second. Murphy, some of the Sioux at Standing Rock were cool looking. Randy, for sure. I mean, why can't you just have like a secret vagina? Murphy, <laughs> only the three of us will know about it, Petty. Just a tiny little fish. That way she'll share something with people trying to empathize with her. Randy, fish must have vaginas, you know? Like, just like a divot. Murphy, just the tiny thumb and an inside out oven mitt. Randy, yeah, the front pocket in a doll's jeans. Murphy, Penny, we're joking, but we're serious. Randy, I'm actually not joking at all. I'm looking around for an oven mitt to help me think this through. I have an idea. Let's meet in the Grove for sushi. We can work through a rough arc of act one, and then we can, quote, do research on fish anatomy. Randy, we can look at the whole tuna, get a sashimi boat, and write it off as business. Penelope, fine. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I love this scene. It's also totally horrifying. And it struck me almost as the kind of conversations that go on behind the scenes with male plastic surgeons. Well, also, they, uh, this does, I, I've been told by lots of people um, who've had like, who've had access to the, to the gallery or whatever, um, including a good friend of mine who's a producer that she has had like this very conversation. Like You're that people, me. Oh, oh, like God. yes, no. That people have said like things like you know we have to, we can't look at a woman. We we need to. Um, what was it? I can't give. I guess I can't go into specifics because I don't want to blow anyone's cover. But that, like <laughs> basically that there will be conversations in which people just can't believe that a woman. Oh, that women need to be given like incredibly clear motives because mm. 
they can't be allowed to have like ambiguity or just to sit around thinking or something. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, uh, otherwise and, it's just nothing in their head. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're just like these pretty faces. You know, we need to be really, really clear about the one thing they want. And that one thing is inevitably distilled down into like very heteronormative desire that can then, you know, turn like a Jane Austen novel into marriage slash like permanent coupling. Yeah, yeah, totally. That like they're really simplistic um, kind of ideas about desire and, and about personhood. And I think that, I mean, I was kind of joking earlier about liking simple and stupid things but i think that's there's actually something like super profound about personhood that i hope this book is getting at you know that mm. there are ways in which actually no description fits and yeah like of course these bros are like um particularly superficial and flashy and you know trying to cut to the you know, cut everything down to the to, to the most um marketable but yeah, at the same literally time, cut things. Yes, <laughs> literally. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, even more nuanced ways of trying to package and repackage ourselves or put ourselves into categories or even like gender and sex categories or even like, you know, my being a mom in the world, I find incredibly problematic the way that mm -hmm. that reflects certain people find me safe and they find me believable and they find certain things um, ready-made about me being a mom in the world that I find incredibly disturbing and I, I want to fight. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know. I just, I think that there are a lot of moments, uh, where we find ourselves kind of categorized and packaged and packaging ourselves and, you know, and the mermaid, the, the, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I, no, no, I was just going to say that, 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 that feel like violations, even if they're everyday things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the figure of the mermaid being this complicated third way that is, you know, none of the kind of constructed boxes for what a woman, a woman can think and feel, but yet needs to be, needs to be operated on to yeah, make well, fit, to make fit. The, the, if you think about the little mermaid, which I have to admit, like I have always been fascinated by mermaids, even though this book is about, about a lot more than the mermaids It's not a mermaid fetishist book but but I remember after I saw um the little mermaid the Disney movie when I was like eight years old or whatever I was like obsessed with this figure and you know it's a really disturbing story that that story it, it, first of all it's the most openly nakedly transactional of all mm -hmm. the like fairy tales mm -hmm. she literally bargains away her voice mm -hmm. for a shot at marriage at like at heteronormative and economic stability Mm -hmm. for a place in the world she's like i will shut up forever mm. oh my god <laughs> yeah and it's a transaction it's a bargain it's a it's a you know like what it kind of a lesson is that for as a coming of age story it's a really really dark one but also i think the actual story is even darker <laughs> oh no doubt i haven't i actually haven't gone back to the uh hans christian anderson one but i'm sure someone gets like their dick cut off or like someone's like <laughs> dicks get thrown in a well like i'm sure it's just like all the children in a village have to die i'm sure it's the worst um but like um but but then what's crazy to me what's crazy to me is that they're such sex symbols that like 
they're you know everyone i mean they are they're sexy like that's oh yeah whole, yeah you know yeah well um, you use the, the the like uh seashell uh bra thing as an example <laughs> of why they're you know sort of trotted out as as sex objects but but i think it's insane like what does that that that, that a creature that is half sexy lady and half tuna it's like a timeless it's just like gentlemen come to me like and sings and like lures them all to their death like it's like this timeless like sexual literally um symbol of allure mm. so i don't know there's like a lot of complexity around this um around this around the symbol and actually you know of all of the fables to get retold i think it's it's the it's it's had the hardest time having like kind of modern retelling at least i don't know there's some really weird weird stuff on like netflix there's like an australian show about roommate teenagers um, oh dear yeah <laughs> yeah it's funny because i was thinking as i was reading it that you know i have seen you know, mermaids around a little bit in literature and and film, but it's less defined than like, you know, the 1980s vampire reimagining re was so clearly like anxiety about the AIDS ep ep epidemic or sort of capitalism's, you know, carnivorous impulses. But the mermaid, it remains a little bit unknowable in the exact kind of cultural symbolism that it's trying to to bring about bring about and i think that's what something you really play up here you don't want sylvia to stand in for just one thing right yeah no absolutely yeah yeah no i i i i, I don't yeah that's okay i don't want her to stand in for just one thing it's true and the you know you you just mentioned the sort of the fact that like despite being kind of characterized as these sort of like infinitely sexy hybrid creatures you know the the madeline miller blurb on your book you know reminds me that like cersei very often the mermaids sort of song lord men to their deaths and so there's the there's an aspect of it there a kind of uh, a sexuality mixed with a power that in particular is about destroying patriarchy and i'm, yeah, I'm wondering your thoughts yeah. about that yeah i think i think people are scared of women when they're unknowable hmm. um and i say women uh, creatures but there's a connection um throughout the book which no doubt you picked up on as a teacher yourself but with with teenagers and oh, with yeah. right with adolescents and with with students with the teacher student relationship kind of and with yeah with with this these this age which you know I in this in the book it's um you know it's it's high school students late high school students I I had experience teaching young college college students but you know same vibe um, people who don't know who they are yet. And my experience of working with them was that they had access to such profound thoughts um, mm -hmm. because they hadn't yet rationalized themselves into a kind of category in the world, a way of being, and they were their very rawness was actually intellectually thrilling, even if they got everything wrong, you know, um, even if they made assumptions or leaps or whatever. Or it was constantly real... got the character's name wrong, as yeah, is exactly. the case in your, in your telling. But they don't need the name. They have everything else. You know, they've got, they know the character so well that the, that they are that they, you know, they don't need that character's ID card. They have their mm -hmm. heartbeat, you know? So there's a, there's a real appreciation for, 
times in life and and times kinds of discourse and and ways of being that are that in which we find ourselves unknowable and like holding kind of holding that up as as really important and um even maybe idealizing it a little bit although the teenagers in the book are also scary and funny and weird you know? they're so scary and i was just <laughs> struck by how wonderfully i mean you have this line do not go to war with women in a state of becoming their dark arts are deep and indomitable which i thought was one of my favorite descriptions ever of teenage girls which but comes also... right after a teenage girl like traps her with yeah. a lie it's so, like <laughs> lying herself you know these like these kind of games of um of yeah i don't know playing playing chess with references and stuff of course she she gets nailed by a teenager on that and and you show off both the teenagers like intellectual precociousness but also her just you know she has no use for falsity or fakeness and so she's going to like cut down to size anyone who kind of puts forth artifice and you know if you saw season 1 of white lotus there's a similar kind of like vibe of like too smart too precocious too too willing to kind of wield dark art Arts. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm wondering what about kind of the teenage girls who end up becoming a, a really big part of Penny's attempt to save her her creative work? What appealed to you as, in having them play this role as powerful and scary, despite the fact that society constrains particularly teenage girls in such unbelievable ways? Well, it constrains them and also... Um because teenagers have insecurities and want to feel belonging they are also easily marketed to right the like market segment of, mm -hmm. of the adolescent right like um their uh, their insecurities about their bodies their appearances can be preyed on by you know cosmetics fast fashion whatever it is um so so you know it's it's a it's a double-edged thing they're at once you know powerful and um you know, alive in their in their ambiguity and volatile and and, and um, uh, unknowable, but then at the same time, you know, they are they're these objects of real commercial. Um, they're these real commercial prizes. But yeah, I don't know. I I think that the the um I think you know the the novel starts with Penny leaving teaching. She in the end, I mean, I'll I, I guess this is something of a of a spoiler, but yeah, she she leaves teaching to go off and and she because she she doesn't want to leave teaching, but teaching doesn't pay enough, and Hollywood you mm -hmm. know comes calling, mm -hmm. um, and the it's these teenagers that kind of they say they bring her back, they save her um by by bringing her in a sense back to teaching. And I liked the idea that, you know, teachers don't know everything. And <laughs> I mean, that's a simplistic way to put it, but that it was the agency of these that these people had some agency in bringing her back to herself. Yeah, that's really nicely said. And, you know, I, you, you were, you are a recovering academic and have spent time in, in the classroom. And I loved the complexity that you offered scenes of the classroom where even though teenagers were were being, you know, their somewhat dopey selves. You were also so willing to see them as as offering things that that Penny hadn't thought of, or ways to think of. You know, I think it's House of Mirth that they read in the opening classroom scene, and bringing real light to that 
to that novel that might have been unavailable to to her otherwise? I I taught a class at the University of Chicago's Paris Center here um, in in Paris where I live. Um, in 2014 or 15 or something. And it was this really intense group of students. It was, um, we, we did a semester's worth in three weeks or something like that. So we met every day for many, many hours and really got to know each other. Um, I mean, when I say get to know each other, I don't know anything about their lives or their families, but you know, talking about painting, talking about the history of art, talking about the history of exhibitions, talking about, you know. And at the end, they gave me flowers and a card before they went all went back to Chicago. And the card said on it, we can't wait to see what becomes of you. <laughs> something like that. It was like, you're headed for great things. Like, you know, oh, like, the places you'll go. Yes. In no way were they the students. Like, I know that sounds so cheesy. Like the teacher has become a student, but they, they are so future oriented. And I think something that, um, that's important or not important, but something that I realized when I was writing this book is that um, like, so you have no idea why the English teacher in the book wrote this book about mermaids. It has nothing to do with her past. She kind of writes her future and changes the future and her future through writing, through imagining mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm super uninterested in the ways that books reflect their author's backgrounds or histories or whatever, but I'm totally turned on by the ways that a, a book it is something that a bomb that you throw into the future is really like something that changes is a speculation that can materialize. Um, and I love that. I think students, I think younger, I think the, the, anyway, the students that I've talked with and taught, they really live this way. Like their ideas are ready. They're ready to throw them into the future hmm. and to throw them into the world and see them materialize and see the world change. And yeah. And so, and so, so maybe that's a little bit also it's not a it's not a stereotypical adolescent like you know uh willing to break things energy it's that kind of future orientedness that i really wanted to hold on to although their insurrectionist tendencies are also pretty exciting <laughs> absolutely one of the things i loved about your book and your writing was the surprise i got at the sentence level of your work your descriptions of people in particular are beautiful and memorable for example quote some people's mouths are as simple as the slot in an alms box what does your craft practice look like on a sentence by sentence level i don't know um I mean, I'm always playing. I think for me, the most important like muscle is, is play. And maybe that, as I said, I wasn't an English major and I never took fiction writing classes. I learned to write in, in like through just writing and through, through academia, which is a kind of rigor. And I actually think that the academic training that I had was, was really, really important because I was taught you know, I'm trained as an art historian and you could sit around describing a work of art all day long and it wouldn't bring your argument forward. It wouldn't matter. You have to learn how to describe in a motivated way, describe something in a way that contributes to the overall movement, to the overall argument that you're making, to something that matters. You don't describe for describing sake. You describe in a way that's already making an argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually think that art historical training, like has really, it's there, it's there in the mix. Um, it's like that. And just, I don't know. Yeah. Something, some, some, some muscle that also got trained up through 
through performance and comedy and being really open to the the thing the, the crazy idea that the person next to me was throwing at me um and then having to play both those people in my mind yeah, yeah. those those two things really come come together for me yeah play and rigor and openness that's a wonderful way of thinking about writing before i let you go would you be willing to share some of your uh book recommendations with my audience <laughs> Okay. Well, so I like, I'm a, I, God, this is so embarrassing. I'm like a really bad, weird reader, but not bad, but I'm in a weird place right now. So weird is good. Weird is good. Okay. Well, so I'm reading a book by Molly Keene right now called Good Behavior. And I'm always looking for models of comic literature, like just any, anybody that's been described as, as funny or hilarious or whatever, um, might have tools for me. And also I might, enjoy. So yeah, good behavior, Molly Keene. She's often, I found her in some Irish Times fiction. Yeah. And I found her in an Irish Times write up of like, they were asking all these writers what the funniest books they'd ever read was. And everybody said this book. So oh my God. Wow. I gotta get it immediately. Exactly. Yeah. I think she's um, lesser known outside of Ireland. And then, um, okay. So I'm looking at my nice in Alexander. So I just read Love and Capital by Mary Anonymous. Gabriel. By Mary Gabriel. Mary it was Gabriel. nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. It was published um, like 10 years ago. Um, but it's a it's a history of the family life of Karl Marx's wedding to Jenny, his, his marriage with Jenny mm. Marx. Um, and it's a really wonderful way of thinking of an intellectual, you know, intellectual biography is to think of it through the family and through the contributions of the why, you know, the wife and the fatherhood and home life does. And um, also just, it reminds you what a political shit show Europe was in the 1840s. And there's like, you know, I mean, really like, like repress, you know, police uh, surveillance and like just constant political pressure and uh, my 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 ancestors left prussia in 1845 and uh i know why um mm. so yeah um and then i'm reading this book called the love of worker bees by alexandra kollontai which i found via the writer grace lavery who had an epigraph of kollontai in one of her something she posted online and um it is this story of like both political and kind of sexual uh, sexual awakening is the worst <laughs> phrase. It's not sexual, <laughs> but it's like under it's, it's actually just like a f- more coming into self understanding of this Bolshevik uh, activist woman um, during the uh, revolution in Russia, and it's really really good. I think a lot of people are reading her right now, and it's an interesting classic like syllabus pairing with that and Love and Capital. Uh, so, uh, did you want fiction recommendations or just anything? Because oh, any I mean any. Thing. These are all great and like all completely new to me, which I really appreciate because that's not always the case. Well, okay. So, and then the thing that I'm reading that I'm, that is also, I, my husband stole it from me and he's like so into it, but, and I, you will have read this, I'm sure, but Lisa Tadeo, Three Women, it cannot be overstated how important and, and unbelievably just on an artistic level. Talk about a sentence by sentence level. Talk about surprise yeah. sentences. That book is um, so, so ethically, artistically, like culturally important. It's so good. I'm blown away by it. it I will read it. I will read it more than once. Um, and it's, it's a yeah. real triumph. It's so, so good. And my husband is reading it and literally turned to me in bed the other night and was like, wow, you, I, this is a paraphrase. He doesn't talk like this, but he, was saying, <laughs> he said something like, wow, you ladies are always thinking about, uh, us, huh? You know? And I was like, yeah. I really think every every man on this planet should be forced to read this to think about the way they're 
the way female desire, you know, has been conditioned to work socially and um, how male behavior, you know, triggers, engages, violates, whatever that, that desire. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Well, I'm sure your husband will love that paraphrasing. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. He's so intelligent. I just made it, I made him seem like a real idiot. You ladies are always thinking about us. Dudes. No, that's not at all what he talks about. Forget about, about it. <laughs> oh my God. He's, like, he's Irish. I just, one of the things I'm not, I can't, I can't, you know, when you spend too much time with someone and you can't do an impression of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. <laughs> well, I love these, these recommendations and I'm excited to, to dig into the ones I haven't read yet, but I just, I can't recommend enough American Mermaid by Julia Langbein. It is so funny and piercing and just culturally relevant in all kinds of ways. And you, you need to rush out and, and grab it. And Julia, thank you so much for such a thoughtful and fun interview. I really enjoyed getting to talk with you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure for me. I'm so glad you, um, so glad you laughed. That's always what I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly did. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to the hilarious and brilliant Julia Langbein for coming on to talk about her funny and moving debut, American Mermaid. Julia's novel and all her recommendations are available on the website at burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, podcast merch, and ways to get in touch. Please do leave a rating and a recommendation on iTunes or Spotify when next you listen. It brings us new listeners to the show. Later in the week, I'll be interviewing Jinu Chong about his genre-busting time travel novel, Flux. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.